Warning! This week's story is rated R and contains profanity, some explicit sexual imagery, and sordid Hollywood tales. If you'd prefer to listen to stories without explicit content, check out Escape Pod Classic at classic.escapepod.org. Escape Pod 51 April 27, 2006 Today's story is you is, is you ain't by Michael Canfield. Hi, welcome to Escape Pod, giving you fresh falsehoods every week since May 2005. This week we're halfway between our 50th episode celebration and our one year celebration, and I want to take this quiet time to give a little Escape Pod marketing news. Ordinarily, this is stuff we'd put on the back end of the podcast, but this one takes a bit of explanation. And besides, I think you'll find it interesting. I did. So, we've been getting email for a while now from many of you, telling us that you enjoy Escape Pod's content, oh, 90% of the time. But you have concerns about your kids listening to stories about lesbian zombies, or sex robots, or biopunk violence. Or you just prefer for yourselves not to have to filter out some of our more objectionable stories. We've also been offered opportunities to distribute our content in some very public and high-volume channels, but only some of our content. Content considered more or less family-safe. Now, EscapePod's editorial standards have worked for us so far, and we don't intend to change them. But we also like giving people what they ask for. So today, we're launching a new podcast feed called EscapePod Classic. It's an archive feed, presenting our PG and G-rated stories, starting from episode 3 and moving forward week by week. We've also stripped all of these rambling intros from them, You get the author bio, then the story, then you're done. We did that because so many of our intros were time-sensitive, and they'll be reaching a new audience. Now, I don't absolutely guarantee that these stories won't bother anyone. This is our best guess at stories we consider safe for early adolescence and up. If those are the stories that appeal to you most, or if you just don't like listening to these intros, it's not a bad way to catch up on our older stories. So if you're interested, go to classic.escapepod.org and you'll find the same subscribe links as our main site, just pointing to the new feed. Meanwhile, this feed, the thing we simply call Escape Pod, will carry on as we've always been doing it, with a variety of stories that run all over the map as far as target age groups go. Each podcast will get mentioned in the other's feed. We figure this way, everybody gets a choice, and everyone wins. If you have any questions about it, or you want to let us know what you think, drop us a line at feedback at escapepod.org. Particularly if you have kids, and we're concerned about our content, I want to know if Escape Pod Classic satisfies your concerns, or if there's more we can do to make things useful for you. And that moves us to today's story, which is sort of a story about kids, but mostly... no. We present Is You Is, Is You Ain't, by Michael Canfield. Mr. Canfield is a graduate of the Clarion Workshop, and his work has appeared in Realms of Fantasy, Strange Horizons, Black Gate, and the anthology Daikaiju 2, Giant Monster Tales, which makes me realize there are at least two books I've got to track down. The story originally appeared on the webzine Futurismic in 2004. It's narrated for us by the Grand Yoda of science fiction podcasting, Evo Terra. Evo is the co-host, host, or producer of... The Dragon Page Cover to Cover, Dragon Page Winging It, Dragon Page with Class, Slice with Sci-Fi, Evo's Cult Cast, Patiobooks.com with its 44 titles, and the Farpoint Media Network, 
which includes several other quality podcasts. That he found time to read this for us may be empirical evidence of human cloning. So put on your onesies and test the bottle. It's story time. Is You Is, Is You Ain't by Michael Canfield I got my first break as stunt double for the top goodie on Super Comics Babies. For the third season, the producers cast me in a recurring role. Before the series ended its seven-year run, one or two scripts even revolved around my character. You always remember your first job fondly, I guess. But the public remembers me, if at all, for my own series, Ninja Baby. Two films spun off from it. New York Ninja Baby and Ninja Baby 2, Back to the Womb, made good money at the time. Back to the Womb was still considered important for the first use of an in vitro actor, Tommy Baker, who played me in flashback sequences. Tommy came to a bad end. It's a tough business. Good friends burned out early. Drugs, depression, suicide. I'm luckier than most. Ninja Baby fans tell me the movie sacrificed the grace notes that made the series a classic. I don't know. I can tell you that when we produced the original series, we called it shit. I won't kid you. The main reason I've contracted to upload this biography is the money. I want a way out of the baby body. Expensive surgery. Thank you for buying this link. Even if you don't like what I have to say, you've helped an old actor out. I'm told the public will not buy a star bio uplink unless there's a tragedy involved. And a triumph. How's this? I live in a crib in a public care ward. I don't think the folks who come into window shop for orphans know I'm bioengineered and not a real baby like the others warehoused here row by row. If ever a couple expresses interest in buying me, the ward's sales director steers them away to another crib. Salespeople are good at control. They don't want a bio-freak becoming a tourist attraction in the ward. They'd chuck me out if they could, but it's state-run, so they have to keep me. I'm on a waiting list. Re-engineering surgery for the destitute. Been on it for 15 years. More tragedy? Um, I've regressed. I used to be able to carry myself on my Durabone limbs, but the way they attached the muscles in those days didn't work well. The skeleton is still strong, but the muscles weren't meant to last 50 years. Now I flail my arms and legs like a regular baby. That's irony, I guess. I keep my spine uplink cable under blankets where folks won't see it. This is my sole connection to reality. The salespeople never bother to pick me up every couple hours like they do the babies. Okay, my second marriage. Everyone wants to know, or so indicate the polls taken by you who've come this far in the story. I'll give you the inside dope. For all you men in midlife crises out there, listen to this. Never buy a trophy wife. Rent or lease if you have to, but never invest. Believe me, I know. Jilly had everything an oral fixated baby actor wanted. In fact, she had the pair. (laughs) The polls have surged. You want a sex scene right now, but let me build to it. I love Jilly. Happy together in the beginning. I forgot mixed marriages always fail. Jilly had no bio work at all. Completely human. Pretty rare back then, before the universal ban on cosmetic bio enhancement. 
Years ago, when we met, she would have been considered more freakish than me. I liked it. Sex sports like infantilism used to be called fetishes. And Jilly had a fetish. She bounced me on her knee while I goo-gooed and drooled, which she liked. She'd suckle me, and we both liked that. You know, this never occurred to me until now, but I hated myself after we did it. Same way I felt years later doing public appearances at shopping malls and sports vehicle shows. Folks could toss me in the air or football me back and forth. It made them happy. Didn't injure me, but I still felt cheap. Forgive the image to follow. At the time I met Jilly, I had a big head. I couldn't go out in public without a mob forming, and no matter how much you believe you are desired for yourself, women attract easier when you're famous. Jilly checked coats at Holy Hell Palace. I walked into the club on Emmy night, past a throng of fans and paparazzi. The show's publicist had arranged coverage, renting several important journalists to interview me and tape dinner before going on to the award ceremony. That meant eating Gerber's baby food, although I preferred sushi. But hell, the sponsors had always treated me great, and it's my job. I never appreciated prima donnas, always believed in working hard. The public made me, and they deserved everything I could give them. The minute I saw Jilly, short skirt, long eyelashes, I accessed my financials via Spinelink and calculated the cash to buy out my first marriage contract. I liquidated some holdings to make up the sum and sent an instruction to my law bot. The bot sent it on to my first wife's rep. When I reached the coat check booth, I had the divorce decree on file. Irreconcilable differences. I wanted the hat check girl. And my first wife didn't want me to have her. Follow the word definition links above, and you'll find poets call this love at first sight. Jilly's bangs touched her eyebrows. Wet lips pouted a round, dimpled chin. The way her mouth opened, searching, trapped me. The uniform didn't hurt either. Stiff collar snapped around a long neck, fishnet stockings under a petticoated mini. I ran over and latched onto her calf. Holding tight, I did a flip, bringing my legs up in a scissor hold around her knee. From there, I did a perfect curl, catapulting myself into her arms, flawlessly recreating the attack Ninja Baby made against Cyber Shogun Mama in a highly rated episode. On the show, of course, the attack ended in Mama's decapitation. The crowd went wild. They didn't have to. Reaction to my unrehearsed moves could be morphed in on the signal's way to broadcast, but they dug it. A great ego boost for me. I'm a born ham. I took Jilly home that night. We went upstairs and let her hold my Emmys. As I recall, I won 15. Not a record, but respectable. There's a feeling I never get anymore. The feeling that if a good thing happens, you deserve it. Belief in your own greatness seduces you. Jilly batted her large, innocent eyelashes at me, and I basked in the attention. I was a big star, remember? Beautiful girls belonged to me. I can still see the look on her face when I went to the cabinet and poured a scotch. Is it okay for you to drink? She asked. It's never okay for anybody to drink, I said, downing it. I can't stop looking at you, she told me. You're beautiful. I winked. I'm a regular guy. But I didn't believe it. I'd work hard for stardom. I want to pick you up, she said. I want to hold you. Will you let me? I nodded. We held each other all night, laying together, talking, opening up, 
I reveled in her purity, her innocence. She told me her simple desires. I want a big house, she said. A big house with a yard and a fountain and lots of room for kids. Is that corny? No, kiddo. It's the American dream. I want to be a great person. That must sound stupid to you. You meet great people all the time. I told her it was a lonely business, and I'd never met anyone in it who could hold a candle to her. Do you like me? she asked. I told her I guessed I did. A lot. Then I told her the one thing she needed to know before making a commitment to me. If you looked, I suppose you could have found a doctor to outfit adult sex organs, but not if you wanted to make it in show business. Most actors shelved their sex drives anyway. It's a tough business, and you don't want to get sidetracked dating or supporting a family when you start out. A baby actor has to consider what to cram in a 20-inch body that needs to walk and talk, not to mention tumble and kick. Something must go. People ask me if I'm bitter. Not at all. I figured I'd add it on later, when the time was right. Therefore, though I do get a woody now and then, love always meant more than the physical act to me. Holding. Cuddling. From those things I got what I needed, and any woman with me had to accept that. Jilly understood. We kissed and she squeezed me. We held each other tight. How could I not love her? My next public appearance, Jilly carried me in, cradled in her arms. We bought a hillside mansion and moved in at the end of the month. Jilly even became a minor celebrity in her own right with a cosmetics line. The tabloids loved us. The media falsely portrayed me as the only baby actor with an adult-sized wife. But as I found out later, Jilly never grew up. Never having experienced puberty or physical changes of maturing, I relied on my manager-slash-mother to tell me about these things. She used to say, you keep an image of yourself at a certain age and carry it through life, no matter how old you get. An emotional age, if you will. She told me she always thought of herself in her late 20s. I'd put Jilly at emotional age 16. She couldn't handle the fame, the fortune. I think she would have trouble in any marriage, even without the extra baggage. Picture our trendy Beverly Hills mansion. Non-automated, non-wired, old Hollywood. To folks in the business then, the height of coolness meant living with no home media link-ins. Picture me and Jilly sitting down to breakfast. She liked to put me in the high chair and spoon my eggs. At first I thought it was fun. A little honeymooners game. And honest to God, it never occurred to me we had headed down the wrong path. Now picture when the trouble began. I used to do charity events. All actors have to. And I'd often appear at fundraisers for a group called Children Against Family Abuse. It's a subject I cared deeply about then, as I do today. I brought Jilly along to the rally. For the first time, she experienced my public surrounding me. I remember that in the group of regional chair kids, 14-year-old girls predominated. The kids filled up the platform steps to the dais, bringing their posters and little ninja baby dolls for me to autograph. Like kids anywhere, they got jumpy so close to a TV personality. I did my best to connect with each one and keep the line moving, but they kept coming, and the line grew faster than I could move kids through it. The ones in the back got anxious stood tiptoed, leaning on the kids closer in, to try and get a glimpse. This pushed the whole crowd forward. We never appeared without a strong security contingent, and I'm sure to this day they could have handled the crowd if Jilly 
didn't do what she did. Being so focused on working the group, I missed Jilly's anxiety signs that, in retrospect, I should have noticed. She told me later she convinced herself the crowd would surge forward and trample me. It didn't do any good reminding her my bioengineer body could withstand a Humvee driving over it, as the show's fans no doubt remember from several episodes. Anyway, love being love, Jilly screamed at the kids to back up, which made those at the rear strain harder to see the commotion. She sprung and scooped me in her arms, bundling me away. A guard, and he should have known better, must have mistaken my wife's panic for an assassination or kidnap attempt. He leaped and tackled Jilly as she tried to descend the dais by forcing back the kids standing on the steps. The kids stampeded. I can't apologize for what security did next. They fired shots, and through a miracle, no one died. A miracle. The guards farthest away fired first, forcing a rush up the stairs. Never built to hold a hundred kids, the stilt snapped, the platform collapsed. I ended up under piled children, trapped beneath Jilly's unconscious body. Her heart beat against my ear, her chest cavity squashed so flat no air could get in. I could do nothing for her right then. I left her and crawled up through the screaming kids, reaching the heap's apex. Emerging from the pileup, I encountered a horror show. Parents surrounding security, who surrounded distraught, wailing adolescents, all one moment away from breaking out into violence. I acted fast. Now, I'm no hero, and I won't lie to you and say I didn't have my career viability in the back of my mind when I did this. But publicity issues aside, I didn't want anyone getting killed. I'm equipped with powerful lungs, because a baby actor has to wail on cue and keep it up take after take. My voice carried, though I'm not a singer by any means. I sang the one song I knew would resonate with everyone in the crowd. The Ninja Baby theme. Who's the kid with the Kung Fu kicks? Ninja Baby! Ninja Baby! Come on, you know the words. The crowd responded to me and started, by twos and threes, joining in. Some held hands. Ambulance sirens in the distance whined nearer. The press treated me as a savior, and our summer reruns shot up in the ratings chart. Jilly spent a little time in the hospital. When she came home, everything changed. The whole thing had ratcheted my fame notches, and Jilly had a hard time with it. She hated my career. Why do you have to do publicity? she asked. I was trying to pack for a tour to Australia and Indonesia to promote the show there. You've already got the top-rated action show in the world. I couldn't explain that the number one spot didn't hold itself. You slipped if you stopped trying harder. Jilly didn't care. Your place is at home with your wife, she said. This should be enough for you. I should be enough. You are enough for me. Then don't go, she said. Please? I didn't listen. I didn't understand her needs. When I came home a month later, I found Jilly had bought an East European baby. She sat in the kitchen, wearing a white terry cloth robe. Through the window, sunlight shone in her hair. She nursed the child. Jilly glared my way, defiant. She never bothered to get lactating implants for me. Who have we here? I said. Scott. I've named him Scott. I nodded. I couldn't face her right then, so I went off to get cleaned up from my flight. Afterward, I still didn't want to see her. 
I poured a scotch from the decanter in my study, lit a Churchill, and spent the next hour on the rear balcony, thinking. I felt... old. The sun set, and I went back inside. I found Jilly in a spare bedroom, which she had turned into a nursery. She stood at a crib, rocking the baby. She didn't see me in the doorway, watching her. How could you bring a child into our home without discussion, Jill? You're never here anyway, she said. You have your career. I don't have anything. That's not true. You have your own career. I meant the cosmetics line. It isn't enough. Work is enough for you, but I'm not like you. You think if something is right for you, it's right for everybody. I'm not you. I'll never be you. I went over and took her hand. You should have talked to me. I feel like you did this to hurt me. You can't use a child for that. Don't send him away, said Jilly. I always thought I'd do a kid when and if I retired, never sooner. I figured I had two choices, divorce Jilly or start a family. <sighs> Pick me up so I can see him, she did, holding me over him. Scott, huh? Scotty. Scooter. He's a fine-looking boy. Quiet, though. Jilly smiled and looked down at our son. He's sleepy. Look at those tiny eyes squished shut. Isn't he the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life? I couldn't help remembering times, not so long ago, when Jilly looked at me that way. That week I went to work on what I did not yet know would be the final season of Ninja Baby. You never see the end looming, not when you're on top. In hindsight, I can tell you where the whole thing unraveled. The tremendous success Ninja Baby received and the oversaturation of imitators drove the baby character concept into a well-deserved, long-delayed grave. The audience wanted anthropomorphized animals now. We added a wise-cracking panda to the cast in a blatant but half-hearted attempt to win back ratings. It failed. Too little. Too late. Being the most famous baby actor in the world, I got the brunt of the backlash. And I didn't work in the next three years. A skit on a comedy show had dingoes tear apart a Ninja Baby-like character. Kill Ninja Baby! Buttons and stickers appeared. And every hack comic used me to punch up a lagging set. I started to drink in earnest. Actually, I attacked drinking the way I attacked my career over the past decade. Some people drink because they hope it'll make things easier. Me? I drank to live. Jilly raised Scooter. I watched her, a fine and doting mother, hold his little arms up as he took his first steps, feed him, bathe him, and decipher his first word. It wasn't Dada. I never claimed to be cut out for fatherhood. Still, in hindsight, I'll always regret I didn't take a hand in it when I had the chance. Not that Jilly ever asked for help. I faded into the background now that she cared for a real baby. The latest ratings for this link have come in, and I've lost half the audience since the near-tragic charity appearance. Polling info shows the remaining audience wants me to get to the breakup. Here goes. I love the kid. Jilly, if you're logged on somewhere, I hope you know that. I say it now because I couldn't say it then. I don't even remember how it started. I'm sure Scooter had done his run-up-and-down-the-hall act the entire afternoon, getting in everything. 
The house formed a veritable obstacle course for our curious munchkin. Taller than me, already on the way to becoming a man. He had those big blue eyes and that golden hair. Mother's special boy. I can't help but wonder what you thought of me then, Jilly. If you thought of me at all. Certainly not as father to Scooter or husband to you. Maybe as a drunken lout stumbling through your lives here and there. My muscles had already begun to degrade. I worked out, well, when I remembered to, with a rubber ball to keep the strength in my grip. The leg exercises I'd pretty much abandoned, content to crawl to the bottom shelf of the liquor cabinet, but I needed my hands to be able to lift a glass. Anyway, Scooter was three by this time, and not the most unselfish of children. He liked balls, any round thing at all, in fact. And I remember having to chase him all over the fuck because he stole my rubber reflex ball every chance he could! I don't remember where in the house you were at that moment, but you couldn't have gone far. You never went far from the scooter. He grabbed my rubber ball and ran with it. A game to him. Maybe no idea what the effect would be on me. I don't know, but it pissed me off. I hollered for you and called him a little shit, and he hauled ass. Like I said, my legs didn't work well anymore, but I did keep after him until he either tuckered out or forgot he meant to keep away from me in the first place. I closed it enough to yank the ball from his hand. He cried. He let loose a wail. In retrospect, I can see how it must have looked to you, Jill. And I offer the weak excuse of drunkenness. Plus, it was my ball. He figured, with me half his size, he could do anything he wanted and get away with it. He grabbed the ball back and pushed me down. Crawling forward, I rose up. I smacked him so hard it knocked him clean on his butt. You came in then. You screamed. You screamed like I had hit you yourself, and you knelt to gather Scooter in your arms. You bent around to shield him. I tried to get past to see if I'd hurt him, but you wouldn't let me. Jilly, it was the booze. I never would have done it except for the booze. I tried to apologize. I, I tried to make you open up your arms so I could see him. You wouldn't allow it. That night you left me and took our son away. Jilly sued for divorce, but I blocked it. I held all the assets in my name. On paper, I even owned Jilly's cosmetics line. I ordered a law bot to gum up the divorce any way possible. It found a hell of a good one. Jilly had bought Scooter through the company, which meant he belonged to me as an asset. Jilly technically served as mother only as long as she remained my employee. She terminated that employment the day she left me. The custody battle hit the press. Jilly and I both sold our versions to different outlets, and I achieved celebrity again. With story lead-in set to appear, Baby Abuses Son, in her version, and Trophy Wife Separates Toddler Father and Son, in mine, how could I avoid achieving fame again? I dumped whatever money I hadn't drunk yet into the custody battle. My lawyer bots instructed me to clean up my act, but I was too dissipated. And what little notoriety I'd regained, I squandered nightclubbing, trying to jumpstart my career. I didn't even log into court for the final custody hearing. The whole country polled against me. More hated than ever, I wasn't a fit father. However, in the end, I had the law on my side, and Jilly never stood a chance. I brought Scotty back home, then sat down to resurrect my dismal reputation by starting work on a print autobiography. Jilly came to see me. 
I reminded her she didn't have the money to buy visiting rights to Scooter. You told me once that I shouldn't use a child to hurt you, said Jilly. Don't do that to me now. You tried to take my son from me, I said. You never wanted him. He's mine. My paperwork says otherwise. The paperwork doesn't matter. Scotty belongs with me. Please, I'll do anything. Come back, I said. Come back to me and start over. She shook her head, started tearing up. Excuse me, I told her, but I thought you meant business. I'll sign away my story rights, she said. You can tell any version you want, and I won't dispute it. That caught me. I want your version ghostwritten to my approval. She nodded. I don't care what people think, she said. That's more important to you, anyway. I had a tell-all published under Jilly's name. In fact, she took the blame for my alcoholism, the divorce, hitting scooter, world poverty, anything that occurred to me. The first edition sold out in a weekend. But follow-ups did poorly. Like critics said when we added a panda to Ninja Baby, such a cynical attempt to curry favor didn't ring true. So the world had to wait until today for my real story. I heard somewhere Jilly took Scooter away and became a nurse, settling somewhere in Asia. I hope so. That would be nice for her. I saw them once more. At least, I want to believe I did. A decade after the divorce, I toured the Korean Peninsula with a few Hollywood has-beens. Barfy the Frog, the Storm Monkeys, Carrot Cat, some others. In the middle of our shtick, I looked out across a crowded arena. A teenage boy, blonde, with deep blue eyes, and tall as a tree, stood with his dark-haired mother. He had an arm around her shoulders, shielding her from the jostling crowd. A rare gesture, I thought, for a boy of thirteen or so to make toward his mother. Rare and admirable. I hope it was you, Jilly, and our son. That's the kind of man I want to believe he grew up to become. I expect he's left you by now, to go off on his own, live his own life. I wish there was more to say. I'm told I need to end with a cliffhanger to hook you into buying another uplink. But there won't be one. This is the end of Ninja Baby. If you expected more, you're not going to get it here. It's feeding time with the state-sponsored baby pen. Even after all these years, Gerber's still the number one mealtime choice for babies the world over. I eat it every day, though not for the big bucks anymore. Prospective parents out window shopping love to watch babies eat. Even though I'm not on the block with the real kids, I'll mug it up for them. I may not have much to offer now, but I'll wave my arms, kick my legs, and do my best to give the folks a show. And that was our story. This story drew me because I'm the parent of a one-year-old right now. And one of my favorite things about having a one-year-old is that he'll stop being one. Probably within a year. Steve, this is C.A. Sizemore of Phoenix, Arizona, and I just have to say, you cannot make us wait another year for another story like that. I just listened to the last Escape Pod 50, and I have to say... Uh, who do I have to, who, who do you want killed? I will gladly do anyone, any, knock off anyone you need me to, to get more good stories from that Ely guy. Have a good one. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for the offer, CA. Unfortunately, if you were going to kill the people responsible for preventing me from a better story output, you'd have to start with me. 
Over the past year, I've gotten very little writing done because between my job, my family, and a skate pod, writing has been at the bottom of the list. But that's changing. Specifically, my job is changing. Definitely, for real now. And I should have more time, and you'll hopefully see more from that Ely guy. Although this podcast is, and will always be, about other people's writing. But I do thank you for the compliment, as well as the other folks who wrote in to say nice things about the malcontent. Paul Fisher wants to know why I haven't mentioned Balticon yet. Sorry, Paul. So the deal is this. I'm going to be a guest at Balticon, the big convention in Baltimore, Maryland, next month. Paul's put together a very impressive podcasting track there, with Merle Lafferty and Patrick McLean from the Shanaki, and some other excellent podcasters. You've also got big guests there, like Neil Gaiman and Gene Wolfe. So if you're not doing anything over Memorial Day weekend, stop on by and see us. Details for that are at balticon.org. Some other feedback? Patrick, an emergency medicine doctor here in Georgia, responded to my Georgia Tech plug last time. He was an IE in 92, and he says, The further I get from college, the more I understand and appreciate all of the things that tech provided me, in addition to an excellent education. James says, So you have discovered the truth of many jobs, including mine. A database administrator that does a good job is invisible to the company at large. The only time that most of the company knows you did something is when you fail or when a disaster strikes. Yes, James, I know how true that is. A suggestion to all of you who are in business but aren't IT staff yourselves. If you want to do immediate, absolute good, tell one of the IT staffers in your company today that you appreciate what they do for you. The difference it makes to that person and to your company could be dramatic. And finally, Derek, a.k.a. Tech Knight, sent us a message this afternoon. We've had a lot of complaints that it's hard to get all of our older content. And I keep saying, well, we'll be set up at Patio Books eventually, or try a collection CD, or whatever. Derek did something about it himself. He's created a website called escapearchive.com and set up a new podcast for all of our older stories from the beginning. It's totally legal because of our Creative Commons license. In fact, it's not just permitted, I'm grateful to him for it. And we'll be linking back to his site. Again, that's escapearchive.com. And that's just some of our feedback. If you have praise, criticism, questions, or a foolproof answer to C.S. Lewis's trilemma, leave a comment at escapepod.org or write to us at feedback at escapepod.org. Or call our voicemail at 206-666-EPOD. Did I mention that Escape Pod was Creative Commons licensed? On an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license? I did? Good. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. Hey, there's new news at daikaiju.org. It says, Having new person is that much of pounding an attack skill. Daikaiju is soon the meeting of horizon for new recordings. Radioactive energy warms ocean depths. No, I don't know either. But it sounds cool, and reading from their site makes one more week that I don't have to make up something funny. So that was our show for this week. Next week is Escape Pod number 52, and after that, the future. So keep listening. And keep having fun.